How Can I Help is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. What would you do if you thought someone you knew was in an abusive relationship? Uh, I think I would start by reasoning with um, my friend or family member. If it wasn't getting through, then um, I would find an opportunity to call the police. If, if we learned that there was any sort of abuse, I would have no hesitation in talking to them, encouraging them to get help, and perhaps confronting the perpetrator. If it was a family member, I'd, I'd probably just uh, barge in and take over. Would I even know that a friend or family was in an abusive relationship? Probably not, but yeah, I don't know, it's hard because you don't want to be intrusive. From Pro Bono News, this is How Can I Help? A podcast for people who want to help but don't know where to start. I'm Wendy Williams, the editor of Pro Bono News. Each week, I'll speak to someone who knows firsthand what it's like to live through different issues. I'll also talk to the experts, the people working on the front lines, about what you and I can do to help. This podcast is not going to solve the world's problems, but it might just give some of us the tools we need to help make the world a better place. A warning before we begin. This episode contains discussions of domestic and family violence that some people may find triggering. The statistics are shocking. On average, one woman a week is murdered in Australia by her current or former partner. And from the age of 15, a quarter of all women experience emotional abuse by a current or former partner. But what do you do if you suspect someone you know, whether it's a friend, neighbour, co-worker or close relative, is experiencing domestic or family violence? Perhaps you've seen bruises. Maybe they're wearing long clothing on a hot day, or they seem withdrawn. Where do you start with a conversation like that? In this episode of How Can I Help, we speak to domestic violence survivor and advocate Angela Hachiti and CEO of Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia, Hayley Foster, to find out. After escaping a 20-year violent marriage, Angela now spends her time helping other women to identify and leave similar situations. She told me, the thing about domestic violence is that it can happen so gradually that you almost don't detect it. But over two decades, she endured psychological, emotional and physical abuse. She wasn't allowed to go anywhere, not allowed to speak to anyone. She became estranged from her family. Her husband implanted a tracking device on a car and a listening device on her phone. It was hard to get help. So it was about two weeks into the marriage where I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Yeah, gosh. Yeah. And for someone who's never been in that situation, how can you describe what it's like being in a relationship like that? It's very, very difficult for a person who has experienced it to try to explain it to somebody who has not even experienced it or can't even, you know, fathom, you know, the idea, oh, my goodness, you know, let alone the physical abuse, but there's also the mental and the verbal and the social and the emotional, and and it's all under that huge ugly umbrella that we call domestic violence and family abuse. But you're in a position where 
you feel tired and you feel down. So in my position, I was overseas. I had married this man. I thought he was wonderful. Um, and you don't have choices. And, you know, you're, you go into a marriage, I suppose, or into a relationship thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to get into this to get divorced or, you know, I'm not going to start a relationship just to leave him. So you hang on hope and you want to try to change that person. You want to try to change the mannerisms or the things that make him angry or make her angry. So you try to change yourself to accommodate for them, hoping and praying that they will change their behaviour towards you, which isn't the case. Yeah. It's not the case at all. But, the, but you know, it's very difficult for me to sit here and say, you know, this is what domestic violence is and this is exactly what you're going to go through and exactly what you're going to feel because every situation and every case scenario is totally different. Yeah. And another question you get, a lot from people who don't fully understand the situation is why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? How do you answer that to tell people there's yeah. a lot of good reasons why you haven't left? Yeah, why didn't I leave? That That's the million-dollar question. I think what the common thing is, whether it be like, you know, you're not financially set because they're overpowering and controlling and they, he had control of all my finances, um, I didn't have family support. I didn't have that network to reach out to. I didn't have a lot of close friends. And why I didn't have friends and the network was because I was too ashamed to even tell people, hey, this is my sanctified space. This is my safe haven. This is my home. Yet look what I'm going through. And you become shameful because you don't have control to change what's happening in your home, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah and also you just become a fragment of yourself. You become a shell of yourself because in my, I mean, in my instance, 20 years of being told, you know, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you don't know how to cook, you don't know how to get dressed, you don't know how to look after the kids and you believe it and then you begin to question yourself, am I good enough? Am I going to make the right decision? You know, this man, clearly he loves me because he's estranged me from family because he only wants me for him. But you don't see the toxic traits behind what they're doing yeah. It's only up, up until now I've realized, you know, this is all being premeditated. You know, it's 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 in it's with them and they want control of you and as soon as they have they have you, that's it. You're under their spell type of thing. See, this is another way it's so difficult to explain. Well, why why couldn't you just leave? Pick up and go when he's at work, you know, or I was really oblivious to the fact that he had a tracking device in my car for many years. So I say to myself, thank God I didn't go. Thank God I didn't see my family because he would have known and I may not have been here today. Um, and you don't leave because you believe what they say. Yeah. I believed it when he said to me, I'm going to kill you and the girls. I believed it. In my mind, it was, well, I'm safer being here with him than being away from him because yeah. as soon as I had left, that's when the violence had actually escalated to the point where it was very, very, very dangerous. If someone had asked you, could that have started a conversation or do you think at that stage it was just too difficult? It was very, very difficult because of this overpowering. I, you know what? Can I say something to you, Wendy? If I yeah. were to say something about what he was doing in the home, him being my husband, being the father of my children, being somebody who sh I should have placed wholeheartedly my trust in, um, but I felt guilty about talking about him and that was that guilt. I, I thought to myself, no, I should not be talking about my husband no matter what he's doing 
And it's a guilt because they guilt trip you and they gaslight you to the point where you don't have an opinion, you don't have self-esteem, you don't have self-confidence, and you're basically just a puppet and they're pulling the strings. And for those 20 years, I really wasn't living. I was not living my best life. I didn't know who I was before I married. I had forgotten all of that. I was just basically surviving day by day. And you're in a trance. And I, I, I'm much like I really try to see it as, you know how people are in a cult and you're yeah. transfixed by what happens in a cult? It's the same thing. Because it's, it, it's once you get out of it, and I think more so in my case because it was 20 years, like it spanned over two decades, um, yeah. you know, but if you're in it just newly and fresh and if you can really see those red flags and those triggers earlier on, you know, hindsight's such a beautiful thing. I should have left and I should have done this and I should have done that, but I thought I was doing the best thing at the time. Having not been in that experience myself, it's it's very difficult for us to imagine being that vulnerable and that that terrified. And, and I'd love to get your perspective if, if there was anything that you think your friends or family could have done when you were in that situation that, that could have helped you. Could they have reached you or would they have just made it worse? Yeah. Well, look, you know, um, I, I often thought maybe if I um, got a different mobile phone and a different SIM card to try to contact because he was getting itemised phone bills, he would know who called me and who I called on a daily basis, um, and it was all under his name. So I often think, you know what, if I had done that, maybe I could have contacted somebody and let them know what was happening. Um, but then again, what if he had found the SIM card and he had found the telephone? Then what? You're always, I'm, I was just always on high alert. I was always scared of doing what I knew that I should have done, but I didn't do it. Um, I wished, yeah, I wished that I had reached out more to friends, but he had estranged me from friends and family. I mean, I hadn't spoken to my family in 11 years. He right. kept me away from them. He said to me, you know, if I know that you're going to see your father and your siblings, I'll shoot you. And he did have a registered gun in the house. Mm -hmm. so I believed him because I knew yeah. what he was capable of doing. But then again, I always thought and prayed, well, my friends can see that I'm absent. And I'm not going out as often as I'd like to or I'm not contacting them as much. Um, he got rid of my Facebook and all of that. I wish that they had reached out to me. Yeah. But maybe they didn't realise what was going on because I hid it so well. You know, yeah, as you said, hindsight's a wonderful thing. It's very difficult to look back and know exactly what would have made the difference. But I suppose picking up on what you were talking before then, this is a situation you were in for two decades. It's a really long time. What was the moment when you realised that this is it, I can't take this anymore? Yeah. Um, so I clearly remember this and I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. So it was a, it was a Sunday in January of 2015 and um, my two youngest daughters, I've got three daughters, so the two youngest were playing on the Wii and they were playing Just Dance and making a bit of a fun. The, the youngest was five and uh, the middle child was maybe 10 or 11. Uh, my oldest daughter was inside. She was studying for year 10 at the time, so getting stuff ready for HSC in year 11 and 12. Um, and because they were making such a racket and noise, he came out of the bedroom and called them whores, stop screaming and shouting and all of that. And I just said to him, don't talk to the children that way. And he became very violent very, very quickly. The kids put down their wheeze and they just ran to their bedrooms and shut their doors, which they normally did. And I think that was the norm for them. As soon as we yeah. would get into an argument, they would just go. They were so afraid. 
it escalated very, very quickly. I remember I was making some morning tea for the kids and he just threw things at me. He hit me. He got me down on the kitchen floor, all of that. So he grabbed all the house keys after beating me. Um, he called the girls out and ordered them to stand in a, in a line, quite military in precision, and said mm-hmm. to them, look, you know, um, I broke your mother's neck once and now I'm going to chop her up into a million pieces and put her in a body bag and you're all going to bear witness to this and they had to, yes, Dad, yes, Dad, yes, Dad type of thing. Mm-hmm. You hear me? Like they had to say yes. He grabbed mm-hmm. the keys, he grabbed my keys, he locked us inside the house and went. And my oldest daughter came out and said to me, Mum, this is this is this this was my light bulb moment. She said, Mum, if you do not leave this man right now, I'm going to kill myself. And this is coming from my 16-year-old's mouth. And I just thought, what the F am I doing here? And I had previously taken out five AVOs on him. But then I would always stand in front of a magistrate and say, you know, he's regretful, he's remorseful, he's the father of my children, he won't do it again. And as soon as we would come home from court, he would say, I can't believe you took me to court. I can't believe this and hit me again. So I was always pushed down. You know, every time I tried to make a difference, every time I tried to make a change, always pushed down by him. And I suppose, you know, they say, you know, the the definition of insanity is, you know, doing the same thing over and over again but trying to get a different outcome. Well, that was my life. I was just on a never-ending wheel. Um. But that was my light bulb moment when my oldest daughter said to me, Mum, we got to leave right now. So we just grabbed what we had, just the clothes on our back really, grabbed my handbag. I removed um, the kitchen window. I didn't break it. I removed it off the, you know, it was one of those sliding windows, um, kissed our Maltese terrier goodbye, little Charlie, and we just ran off and we left. I didn't have a plan at all. I didn't know what the hell. I just had to get out. As we were leaving, we crossed the road he came back and he saw us crossing the road. Um, he tried to run over my eldest daughter. Jeez. Um, and my little one was vomiting as we walked because I was so anxious. Yeah. Um, I took a cab to my father's house and then I wasn't welcome there because I hadn't seen him in 11 years. And, yeah, that, and then just went into private rental since, you know, but that's how it all that was the day that we left and that was my light bulb moment and I and I pledged myself that I would never, ever go back. Um, thanks, Angela, for sharing. That's, yeah, a very difficult story, I'm sure, for you to to talk about and I, I appreciate you you being so candid at what's a really incredible moment in your life and the life of your three girls. Um, you mentioned there that you had had a couple of AVOs in the past and, you know, it's, it's, it's a long process and I think sometimes when people talk about leaving they assume that's the end of it it's all over once you've left but actually you then end up in a, in a whole system of things and in your place you might not have somewhere to live you don't know if you have your finances can you talk me through once you've left how that worked what support did you get like that was one of the most fearful fears that I had I couldn't just go out on my own with three children how am I going to do this you know 20 years of marriage he controlled everything I don't know what I'm doing and that scared me the most as well and when I did leave I didn't have any support I didn't have my family there to take me in for a few months so we could set ourselves up um, I hadn't been connected with any organizations or women's health centers or refuges or anything like that so I didn't know what was out there yet if somebody had told me, there is so much support there for you and there is so much there that you're not doing this on your own. 
Yeah. I would have left a long time ago. And then again, and then, of course, you go through the legal process, um, you know, and, and, and facing the perpetrator in court after so many years of trying to hide away from him because at the moment, the day that we left, that it, everything became more dangerous than the 20 years that I was there with him because the perpetrator no longer has control of you, doesn't know where you're going, doesn't know who you're speaking to, doesn't know what you, who, who, who you're talking to and what you're saying about them to others. You know, doesn't know where his children are. I think when you're ready to do it, it all falls into place. It really does. The police were very, very helpful, in particular the domestic violence liaison officers. They were amazing. Um, they put me into contact with the right people. They helped me out. Um, but I had wished that if I had more family and more friends, then it would have been much, much easier for me. You know, I just, I, I wish to God that one day, you know, my father would have knocked on the door and, you know, told him off and, you know, what are you doing to my daughter and that. Yet when I did see my father after 11 years, you know, he made the admission, well, yes, we did know what was going on and we did know that he was doing this to you, but we didn't want to interfere. And I just. What was that like for you to hear that? Oh, imagine. I can't. I, I stood there and I said, but Wow. So you knew that he had broken my neck. You knew I was in hospital and you knew all of these things had happened, yet you didn't think once to come and see how your daughter was or your grandchildren. But we didn't want to interfere. That was between you and him. And he actually said to me, what, stay, what happens in your home stays behind closed doors? And I'm thinking, and then he said, but you didn't never reached out. You never asked us for help. I said, but didn't you realise I was never in a position to? So it's very... Um, a lot of people have a lot of ignorance and I think with my father mixed with some arrogance as well like you know of how things happen in life and how things how a person can person can actually control another person to the point where you're nothing and that really hurt me I was heartbroken because I felt well you know I, I'm nothing to my parents as well I'm nothing to my dad he wouldn't even ask about me or see what I was going through so basically, yeah, I was 100% on my own and tried to navigate the system like the court system and then having to see him and then he was eventually incarcerated for grievous bodily harm and then I actually got him deported. So he's out of the country, he can never come back. What would you say to anyone listening to this podcast who, who fear that their friends or their family members or someone they know is in a relationship? What advice would you give them what would you have said to your dad to do differently? Like what, what should we be doing? Don't give out your opinion. Only listen. Give them a chance to let you know exactly what's going on. And don't be judgmental and don't try to say, well, do this and do that because when a woman wants to leave, she's going to leave when she's right and when the time is right. Don't pressure them but sit down and always just, just check up on them. Text them every now and then. Call them. You know, meet up with them, you know, and if you feel that they're not wanting to go places or do things, then say, well, you know what, I want to come over and just check up on you. I want to see if you're okay. You know, not in a forceful way, but for them to know, hang on a minute, I've got so-and-so, so if things get really dangerous and really ugly to the point where I really need to speak to somebody, she gets it, she understands or he understands I'm able to just pick up the phone or I'm able to go to that person's house and you know, just feel comfort and solace because the first few months you just want somebody there for you. 
So, you know, if you feel that, you know, this person has changed a lot or is really withdrawn or, you know, you you see them less now or, um, you know, you may see them, they have physical marks on them, you know, and they're making up excuses or they may be wearing long sleeves in summer to hide the bruises, to hide the marks. I did that so often, you know, to go out shopping, you know, to do my groceries. I'd be wearing long sleeves because my arms would be battered and bruised. I didn't want people looking at me. Again, there's a stigma, there's the shame, there's the embarrassment. So, you know, if you feel, you know, if you're close to this person and you feel that they've changed or they've withdrawn or you haven't heard from them in a while or the kids are absent from school more than often, you know, my kids would stay at home because he'd hit them and they're bruised. I'm not going to send the kids to school and they've got bruises on them for fear of myself or for fear for, you know, community services to come in and take the kids away. You know, I wish to God somebody would just knock on my door and say, are you okay? But I never saw anybody. I never heard from anyone. And it made my circle of friends smaller and smaller because he wouldn't allow me to have friends. He controlled everything. While the physical bruises have since healed for Angela, the mental and emotional scars are still there. As she explained, Domestic violence is much more than physical violence. It can leave a person isolated and doubting themselves, and there can be a range of reasons why a person experiencing family or domestic violence may not reach out for help. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't help. Hayley Foster is the former CEO of Women's Safety New South Wales, and she now heads up Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. She agrees. It is challenging to know what to say or do, but she says just checking in can be really important. This is becoming more and more common. Like we're actually really to understand. We're hearing it in the media. We're hearing people speak out. And we're really, as a community, we're starting to identify what these red flags are, you know, about controlling behaviour and coercion and intimidation and things like that. And so, you know, controlling people's social contacts and monitoring and regulating them and all those sorts of things that we you know never really recognized or we might, might think were benign in the in the past we're actually as a community and a society starting to recognize these red flags so I think the conversation that you're having is a really important one what I would say is if you are seeing some of those red flags either in your relationship or someone that you care about I'd really sort of say that number one trust your intuition, like trust that gut feeling because if you think that, that something's not right, usually that's that's absolutely the case. Um, and unfortunately a part of coercive controlling behaviour in, in domestic abusive relationships is around seeing that doubt in your own judgement and your own sense of reality. And so if you're starting to, I guess, have those really strong feelings that something's not right, really that. I guess the other thing I would say is, Know that the person that's in that situation, whether it's yourself or whether it's somebody else, is actually the expert of their own situation. They're the ones living it and they're the ones that know all the factors at play, including how to keep themselves safe. So the best thing we can do if we're trying to support somebody in that situation is to pretty much ask the question, are you okay? And let them know that you're there to support them. I think it's really important as well that we understand that in many cases, somebody who's experiencing abuse may not want to reach out or they may not be able to. They may be having their social contacts and relationships really strongly controlled by their partner or family member. So it's really important to kind of understand that there may be reasons why they don't think it's safe or they're not ready to reach out. But if you can let 
the person know that you're worried about, if you just let them know that you're there anytime and they can reach out at any time and sort of check in every now and then, that is truly the best thing you can possibly do. From the perspective of, of family members and friends, if, if you have someone close to you who's in an abusive relationship, who's not in a position where they feel they're able to to leave that for, for a whole plethora of reasons, it can be very hard to stand by and watch that, to watch someone you love going through that. Do you have any advice for what family members can do or how to stay supportive when it can be really hard to see? The reality is that uh, it tends to take, you know, upwards of six, seven, eight, nine times and more so if you have more barriers to kind of seeking help or um, not, you're not supported by family or community. So we, we do need to understand that sometimes this can take some time and it is really painful and really difficult to stand by when that's happening to somebody that you really care about. I think the point I would make is that just asking the question, are you okay, validating their experience as well so when they are sort of saying oh I'm just I feel like I'm you know I'm feeling like he's you know constantly conscious to me or I really, really wish I could go out with my friends just validating that you know validating and just saying you know what actually it's not okay and as well if, if if somebody's been subjected to to abuse just saying you know what you don't deserve that it's not your fault and it's not okay but then really importantly it's so hard to do when you care so much about the person but we really need to refrain from telling them what to do we really need to sort of acknowledge it make sure that they don't feel any shame you know also some people feel really criticized that you're criticizing their relationship and they might feel shamed and embarrassed as a result of that so we need to take a step back and say you know what it's not your shame it's not okay it's not your fault and then the question, the critical question, is there anything I can do to support you? I'm here for you, you know? And I think that that's really challenging, as you said. And let's own, let's own it. It's like it's challenging. It can be very hard to recognise the kind of relationship you're in. You don't understand it until you're able to kind of see it from, from a distance. What's a way that you would recommend people can handle a conversation to perhaps let somebody who's in an abusive relationship know that they're in an abusive relationship when perhaps they can't see it themselves? One of the tips that I have for people in that situation is to make it a little bit more about yourself. There's a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment and judgment that can be felt that comes with this. If you're making observations about somebody else's relationship, right? So I, I guess what I would say is try as much as possible to make it about you. So, oh, I remember, you know, I had this situation or I, I feel like in my relationship I've made it really clear with my partner that, you know, it's okay that he doesn't want to drink, for example. That's absolutely okay but I'm actually the boss of me and it's not okay for him to tell me what to do. You know, like I think giving those kinds of examples or talking about media, so talking about a show where something like that happened, there's always sort of public cases you can talk about and sort of talking about that a little bit more can be more subtle. But you can also, depending on your relationship with the person, you can directly sort of say, hey, I'm a bit worried. I'm a bit worried about this, you know. It's actually, it's not okay for you to be controlled. But ultimately, it's about, you know, raising awareness and saying, actually, that's not love that's not supporting you to be who you want to be. And, and I think that's okay to say too. You really have to judge the situation. I think one thing I'd also make the point about is don't be too scared about making a mistake. Seriously, the most important thing is that you speak up, you ask them if they're okay. The worst thing we could possibly do is be silent and not say anything because silence is a sends a very strong message not only to the person that you're worried about who's the target of that abuse that 
this is acceptable, this is normal, I deserve this. Um, but it, it also sends an extremely strong message to the persisting abuse that they're entitled to behave this way. No one's going to do anything about it. There's going to be no negative consequences for them socially and they will continue to behave that way and worse, it will reinforce what they're doing and it could get worse. No, I think that's really good advice and I think um, that can often be really debilitating for people who want to help is that they just think they're going to get it wrong so they just avoid doing anything and that obviously, as you point out, can almost be worse. Are there any times when helping can make the situation worse? If you were going to do something in a public forum, if you were going to contact the abuser in a situation that was confrontational or judgmental or, you know, really you can inflame the situation. If you're sitting around the dinner table and one of your friends starts yelling out and humiliating another one of your friends and you sort of speak up and make a big scene and say, oh my gosh, did you just speak to her that way? As opposed to just maybe distracting the situation, changing the subject, saying, oh, hey, you know, can you just come and help me in the kitchen right now? Or, hey, you're going to show me your car. Can I haven't seen that, you know, and, and actually taking the person away and having a conversation in a way that's not going to exacerbate or trigger further violence. But I, I guess what I would say is, again, the worst thing would be to do nothing. But the power, like the power of having that conversation later that night when they're on their own, the next day, the power of that is so incredible. Like the difference of, of that person feeling that they were humiliated like that and no one said anything compared to somebody checking in the next day and saying, are you okay? That was a bit full on. That can make a huge difference as to whether somebody reaches out for help or indeed stays entrapped for a, a lot, lot longer. Yeah. I'd also like to make the point is that it's not just the people who we're worried about experiencing being bearing the brunt of that violence and abuse. It's also the people who are using it. In the reality, people who are using violence and abuse in their relationships are normal, everyday people. They're our friends, our family members, our community members, our colleagues, and they're whole people that have all other aspects to their character and they may have a lot of positive characteristics and do other great things in, in their lives and in the world. I would give the same advice as I do to people who are worried about someone being the, the victim of that abuse to somebody who has worries about someone who's the perpetrator of that abuse. And I would literally, if you have a relationship with that person, I would literally just go up to them and say, hey, are you okay? You know, I'm worried about you. And, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about some of the stuff that was, went down or that's going on or did you want to talk about it? I think it's a strong message that we can send to people that we care about that might be inadvertently or consciously using those behaviours is, hey, you know what, I love you, I care about you. It's not okay, it's it's damaging, it's not helping anybody, including yourself. But if you want to make those changes so that you're not hurting people that you love, I'm really, I'm there for you to walk alongside you on that journey. Thanks for that, Haley. And actually, that's a really interesting point. And I think when we look at what's happening in Australia at the moment and the conversations we're having as a nation about gender and equality and sexual assault and relations. It's a really kind of topical time. And a lot of the focus has been pointed out is so often on women protecting themselves and not often enough on the conversation about educating boys and men about potentially how they should be behaving. And building on what you were just saying there, I mean, how do we change that conversation so that we are looking at both sides and that we are talking about what this means at a big scale across the nation, but also behind closed doors in everybody's homes. Having conversations like we're having now is 
central to this change, like actually saying, you know what, we do need to support people who are in this situation. We absolutely need to do that. We need to be really clear that what they're experiencing is not okay and we're there to support them. But that's only half the conversation. We need to make sure that we are having conversations around, you know, boys and men in particular, but anybody who's using those behaviours, why is it? Why are they using those behaviours? Because it gets them stuff, because it's working out for them, because they they are able to benefit from behaving that way. And so as a society, we need to, number one, we need to make sure that we put in place a proper bottom line and, and consequences for people behaving that way. And then from there, we need to do that education and awareness raising piece that says, you know what, this is the bottom line. This is not okay. We as a society won't tolerate this. So one of the key things I think that will turbocharge this discussion is if leaders start actually speaking up and not just women, I think what's going to really help is when we actually start seeing more and more male leaders in our political sphere, in our communities, in our sporting clubs, in our workplaces and right throughout all of the institutions in our society. We start seeing male leaders standing up and saying, hey, this this ain't cool. Enough is enough. We need to change, and we need to change um, what's acceptable. We need to stop being complicit, and we need to stop encouraging this behaviour. And when we start seeing people we respect that have influence that are standing up like that, it makes a massive difference to particularly young boys, but also men. I mean, ultimately, that peer pressure, that peer component is so critical to norm setting, to saying, you know, what's normal, what's acceptable and what's not. No, and I think that's a great point. It's, it's fantastic that there is a potential way out of this. There is a pathway. One thing I'd love to hear from you is this podcast is really empowering individuals to feel like they can help. And that can be if someone close around them, but it can also be engaging with this issue when there are such tangible ways for this to get better, but it's going to need to come from leadership that's going to require systematic change. How can individuals engage with this issue at that level? And is it as simple as voting differently? Is it a question of writing to their MPs? What would you recommend? Number one, if you are acting in your own sphere of influence, if you're acting in your family circle, your friend circle at your workplace, don't underestimate the power of that. Like there's a massive ripple effect. And I think standing up and, you know, not being complicit anymore when you see something or you're worried about something I think that's absolutely the most powerful thing we can do but yes you know the elected officials that we have running this country and running our states and territories they're there because we've put them into that position and so I would say it's not just about the ballot box yes the ballot box is important but we need to make sure that we're exercising our democratic rights all the time I would encourage people to get on and follow organizations like Women's Safety in New South Wales like White Ribbon Australia, like the Harmony Alliance for Migrant and Refugee Women Having a Voice, like the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Alliance. There are many, many organisations that you could follow and support their action. There are lots of ways you can have your voice. Don't wait till the ballot box. Just get in there and have your say. You know, make sure that your elected representative knows this is a priority for you. As Hayley said, we all have a role to play in not being complicit. Maybe you feel the problem will work itself out or that you shouldn't get involved in a private family matter. The truth is, if you think someone you know is experiencing family or domestic violence, it's okay to say something. You can help them by just reaching out. Approach them respectfully, listen without judgment, don't blame them, believe them, support them. Don't say, if it was me, it's not. 
and you must accept that they know their own situation best. Help them find a domestic violence support service and when the time comes, when they are ready, help them find a safe place to go. And remember, supporting a friend or relative who is being abused can be frightening, stressful and sometimes frustrating. You need to look after yourself too. There are a range of services available to support families and children affected by family violence. If you are in immediate danger, call the police on triple zero. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence, call 1-800-RESPECT, Australia's National Sexual Assault, Domestic and Family Violence Support Service on 1-800-737-732 or visit 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. The Kids Helpline is a 24-hour phone and online service that is available for young people aged between 5 and 25 who need advice, counselling or just someone to talk to. Call 1-800-55-1800 or visit kidshelpline.com.au. If you're concerned about your own behaviour and how you may be affecting someone that you love or care about, there is support for you too. You can call the Men's Referral Service on 1-300-766-491 or visit ntv.org.au. How Can I Help is written and produced by me, Wendy Williams, with sound editing from Stefan Johnson and additional support from Maggie Coggan, Luke Michael and Nikki Stefanoff. If you like this episode, please hit subscribe and share it with your friends. If this has inspired you, or you have a story about a time when you've helped someone or failed to, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us by emailing news at probonoaustralia.com.au. And remember, you can visit probonoaustralia.com.au for all the latest news from across the social economy.